There, so I'm excited that we got Scott McMillan in the house today. Uh, my name is Matthew, right? Creator of the Junior Resource Investing Podcast and Substack. Thank you for tuning in. Full House keeps getting bigger and bigger. This is my fifth time hosting Scott of Invictus here, and I'm excited to have him back. It's been about six months, but obviously the story has come alive again a bit. There's a bit of a, some some energy in the air again in the market with Invictus. Riding shotgun with me today is Jamie Vinnels. He's an independent geological advisor and also an investor in Invictus, and he's here just to play the brains to my, uh, I don't know if you could call me the face of the organization, but I'm something. Uh, questions here today are posed by you. There will be written Q&A, so feel free to type that in. No guarantees that we'll get to them. Uh, I'm going to try to keep this to a two-hour mark just for the sake of this. everybody's sanity who's involved here. Standard disclaimer before I let uh, let Scott go here, right? This is not financial advice. Uh, this, we're not financial advisors, entertainment purposes only, and they will have a full disclaimer in the notes below. But all that said, Scott, right? The man we're all here to see is Scott McBillan, Managing Director of Invictus Energy. Scott, it is good to see you again. Uh, thank you for coming, for coming on the show. How are you today? Hi, Matt. I'm good, thank you. Always a, always a pleasure. And yeah, it has, has been a little while since we since we last um, spoke and had, had one of these, but looking looking forward to the next two hours. That's um, <laughs> I've got as long as we need, but I, I think for everyone's sanity, we'll, you know, we'll try and try and keep it there. And Jamie, nice to nice to see you again, and uh, hope you've been keeping well too. Bye. Right. Yeah, no, we will. Like I say, I think that's a well well said. Two hours. I mean, I think some of you are suckers for punishment, but uh, I won't waste too much time here. Let's just jump into it, uh, Scott, if you don't mind. I mean, I think the general. Uh, flow of this conversation. Maybe we'll start with just a general update, but maybe we'll kind of work, you know, past, present, future. Maybe we'll just a little bit of a discussion regarding uh, M1, QU1, um, and then maybe moving on to the QU2, and then then some forward-looking comments after that. Uh, so Jamie and I will be bouncing back and forth here a little bit, but Scott, maybe just very kind of just to open up the conversation, open up the floor. This is a general update, maybe, right? Uh, where are we now? Where are we come from, and where are we going here in terms of Invictus? Sure. So, so look, probably just recapping a little bit of of Makuyu One first, and and the work that we've been doing probably since we we last spoke over the last few months. So, it's it's really been um, uh, processing and integrating the data that we gathered from Makuyu One, which was which was fairly extensive. Uh, digesting it again first one in the basin so there's all the information is new i think that's that's an important um you know consideration that people need to have is that this is the first time that anyone's seen any any data from the subsurface from from the space and so it does take a little bit of digestion and and you you know it's like a, a jigsaw puzzle with a thousand pieces that gets tossed onto the floor and you're trying to sort it out and and figure out what's going on. So there is, and there's new bits of information that come in all of the time as well. So you've got you've got a lot of different aspects that you need to to kind of get to grips with. So we've been doing that over the last few months, and and that's updated our understanding of of um, of the basin, what we thought pre-drill going into Makuyu one versus what we think now. And again, that's going to be an evolving picture as we drill more wells and get more information. And then how does that how does that fit into the overall strategy of what what we're trying to do? So, from a Makuyu one perspective, uh, you know, again, to have the result that we had uh, with the very first one in the basin is a is you know phenomenal. Uh, I, I think there's yes, it could have been better. We could have had the the discovery 
declared, which would have been an absolute, um, uh, you know, unbelievable achievement in that regard. That that very very rarely happens. I think you know the only one that I can think of in in living memory, and it was even before my time, was the the Orange Basin in um, in Namibia with the Kudu gas field that was discovered, and that was the very first well that was drilled in the basin. And then it took, you know, that was 1974, and then it took until 2022 for Total to discover the next field in the in the basin. So this this doesn't happen often. Um, so been a good result, very disappointing for us to digest, and and obviously a, a big letdown that we couldn't get a, a fluid sample and, and recover that to service to declare a discovery. So. You know, I'm not going to wallow in self pity here, but it it was very very disappointing, and and you know the the share price reflected that the uh, our investors you know obviously felt that that too. But now I think going into this next one, obviously we we have a much greater understanding of what we found in Makuyu one, what it means for the basin, and so we've got a lot more confidence now going into the into Makuyu two than than I had going into Makuyu one. No one ever goes out intending to, to drill a dry well and but it happens that's you know statistically that's our game it's it's part and parcel of what you do and it's why very few companies are able to open up new basins because it it is very difficult but we've managed to do that with the very first well so i'm i'm a lot more relaxed going into mcu2 than i was going into mcu1 because the the most likely outcome from mcu1 was a dry hole and that's you know that that's just uh, stats that'll you know anyone can go and look them up from what you get from wildcat drilling. It's it's a hard game. So now from what we've seen with Makuyu one, we've you know we've proven everything in the in the basin, source rock, trap, seal, reservoir, timing, all of it's there. So now it's a a, a question of trying to. Um, Delineate the basin as quickly as we can, gather as much information in, in, in as reasonable amount of time and cost effectively as we can. Uh, this is an expensive game as well. Uh, it's not like minerals. You, you can never just drill it out and gather perfect information. There's always going to be uncertainty. There's always going to be risk. So, uh, you know, we'll probably come up to why we've picked this location for Makuyu to later on, but we need to also get to grips with what's in the rest of the basin and what's in the rest of the Makui structure, because it's enormous, it's 200 square kilometers under closure. So, but yeah, from a Makui one perspective, obviously prove the, the presence of all of those petroleum system elements. Uh, we've got um, multiple zones um, where we've uh, intersected hydrocarbons um, and, you know, a pity we couldn't get a sample, but we got everything else in terms of our, our data gathering from there. So that's been been a good start. Uh, well, more than a good start, an excellent start. And now we're, we're going to Makuyu 2 now to come back what we left behind, which is a fluid sample for, for the next one, gather some new information in a, in a different part of the field. And then I think, you know, our, our view is once we essentially prove a discovery there, and we've got to do it by the, the listing rules, then that's going to send us on on a very different trajectory from a from a company point of view, from a share price point of view, and a value point of view, because we've got the control and the running room in the whole basin. 
Yeah, well, you pretty much just did a speed run of the whole conversation, so we could probably just end it, end it here and save everyone two hours of time. So no, I'll uh, rather than trying to piece out quite, there's lots of questions I wanted to ask you there, but I think that maybe we'll, I'll try to just remain on track here and, and as I say, kind of discuss Mkuyu one here a bit, core analysis and then whole stability and where things were left is maybe the topic here. Uh, but just maybe if you don't mind, um, you know, I want to talk about Obviously, you, you probably heard about it a lot. You and I spoke last week, and I asked you about it, and I'm sure you're getting it all the time. We, I do want to talk about the sidewall core analysis and what and, what and when sort of thing. But I guess maybe before I kind of get too specific, are there any just generally speaking updates on, on rock or fluid analysis that you can just provide for us or provide color on that? Sure. So we've got – so we, we're just putting together the last bits and pieces of information uh, and integrating it from a fluids perspective. We've got some more mud gas results as we – indicated in a in a release a couple of weeks ago um and then the the cycle core analysis there's still some work to do on those we've got some special core analysis going on with uh, the reservoir sample so with core analysis there's there's a few different aspects to it you've got and we cut cycle cores in different parts of the of the um of the formation so you go and get Reservoir, obviously, because that's where your hydrocarbons are are stored. But you also go and get source rock samples, and you get um, other intervals, so we call them to help calibrate your logs. So there were a couple of couple of uh, anomalous log responses that that we get because you just get you know a picture from the measurements that you get, and they're just curvy lines on a on a log track, and you've got to make sense of them. And so we again some of these some of these um, cores that we cut were to have a look at what that log response was was telling us. So from a reservoir perspective, out of the, I think we we recovered 21 samples out of the 24 attempts that we made, pretty good recovery. Um, only eight of those are reservoir and the rest are either seal, source and core. So there's not a lot of reservoirs, reservoir samples that we actually collated. Uh, further to that, we've got a large number of reservoirs that we intersected as well. So we didn't even get a sample out of every reservoir either because we had 11 reservoirs that we intersected in, in the upper Angua. We had, I'm trying to think back to the logs now, we've probably got four, five or six uh, in separate reservoirs in the Pebbly Arcos. And then we've got, you know, source intervals in all of them. So the source uh, intervals you, you use to try and get some of your biostratigraphy information. We, you know, again, first well in the basin, we need to understand the age of these rocks so that we can help calibrate the basin model and the timing, the provenance of them, the depositional environment that they've come from. All of this information feeds into, into that. So, um, and then some of the reservoir samples we've got, unfortunately, and we and there were some pictures in the in the uh, reports have disked, so they're broken apart so you can't actually get porosity and permeability um not not accurate porosity and permeability information of those because they've got to fit in a in a rubber sleeve uh that you put into the uh into the machine that the, the, that does that works the the cms um depending which lab you're using so we've got a handful of those uh analyses the other reason that some of the the reservoir stuff is still ongoing is because We've been utilizing a new, um, well, new to us, uh, something that I've never done before, where we're trying to extract hydrocarbons out of those reservoir samples. 
to match them with the mud gas um, samples that we have at, at similar depths. So the reason that we're doing that is because we didn't get fluid samples out of those reservoir sections and you get those samples and it, it's a clean sample. So you've got a, what's called a virgin sample out of the reservoir. And, th and that's what you use for your, um, for your fluid information to calibrate your, your reservoir information um, and understand your, your reservoir fluid properties. So if it's oil, if it's gas, your dew points and, and, um, and bubble points, the, how the hydrocarbon phase behavior is going to, um, we won't go down hydrocarbon phase behavior rabbit holes. Uh, it's going to be a, it's going to be an interesting one with this because of the, the, uh, the volatile nature of where we sit on the phase envelope for, for, for these particular fluids. Um, so we've, we've been gathering, so that had to happen first because you, we, we obviously don't want to flush those and then lose the hydrocarbons that were in the course. So that took a little bit longer than we anticipated. So the, the pore per measurements have been done for most of them. And now we're doing uh, special core analysis and doing the, the, the saturation, um, the saturation analysis. So you, um, again, we, we don't have to get into the, the details of how it's done, but this is all done to help us calibrate our log information because that's what we have over the majority of, um, of the formations that we've encountered. And we've got only little spot points now across hundreds of meters of, of reservoir and, and, um, and formation that we penetrated to try and calibrate that. So later on down the track, we'll cut whole core across all of those. And then that, that becomes a much easier endeavor to, to help calibrate your log. So this is, again, new, new to us. It's taken a little bit longer than we thought. And we've got to go and get all of this information so that we can do a very thorough job with calibrating our logs rather than releasing small bits of information that are just piecemeal. You know, if we go and release five um, poorer perm results, is that representative of of everything? It's it's not. So, and when it's ready, we'll release the results with everything. So, it's um, you know I've had a lot of questions on it, and people are saying, "Well, what are you doing with it? Are you hiding it? You know, why aren't you releasing the information?" Uh, and we've had, I mean, we had the same issue with when we were drilling with One, where we, we were accused of withholding information from the market and we had a reverse speeding ticket from the ASX. And mm. as soon as we did have the information and we released it, we saw also what happened. And so it's, people are impatient, understand that we are too, but we've got to, the work has got to be completed at the lab and then we've got to integrate it into our, um, into our workflows and into our understanding. And, and once we've done that, then we'll release it. So, mm. but the stuff's still at the lab at the moment. So that's the bottom line. Yeah, not much, it's done. not much you can do about that. I mean, I, yeah. I think that people will appreciate my asking, even if it does make you roll your eyes and you're just too diplomatic maybe to show it. But I mean, can you, is there any sort of timeline, right? People will want me to ask that question, you know, if it's. You know, so at the moment we're doing um, porous plate experiments with, um, with the cores, which provides you that saturation information. So the way that hydrocarbons migrate into the structure, you know, gets it gets released, and and you've uh, the capillary pressure um, profile that it has when it starts to ingress into the reservoir and flush out um, 
<clears throat> flush out the water, the formation water out of your out of your reservoir. You get that profile so that you can you can help calibrate, and that amount will depend on how far you are above the the um, the free water level. And so there's a you, you take it in steps, and that and that's going on at the moment. So and porous plate experiments take as long as they take. So it just depends on how the how the rocks respond. Yeah, fair. So I don't, it, I don't, I don't have a guide and uh, at 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 the moment. Um, and to be honest, I'm a little bit kind of further back from the technical stuff than I was last year because we've we built the team up, uh, and that responsibility has been taken away from me uh, as well. So it's um, I I like obviously I love the technical aspect. That's my background and where I've come from but it was unsustainable, like me micromanaging everything. So I've got a new exploration manager that's come on board and um, someone that I worked with previously and really thrilled to have him, um, you know, very, um, and made my life infinitely easier. And he's much better at it than I am as well. So again, I think employing people that are better than you to come and do the, you know, uh, aspects of it is a sign of Invictus maturing and it's not, you know, it shouldn't be a one-man band. It's too big to be a one-man band. Uh, and, and, and so I'm a little bit further away from all the technical stuff and, and timelines and everything than I, than I used to be as well. So I don't have an exact uh, time frame of when, when it's going to be done, but I'll leave it to the team and they get on with it. And when it's ready, they'll, we'll release it. Well, I think that anybody who's been following your story for a while or has tuned into previous uh, updates from you with this knows how how uh, intimately and actively you've been involved on site there. So I think, I think everyone's kind of glad that maybe you get a chance to have a team around you of capable people that you can can trust to to work with you and then push in the same direction. Um, I won't I won't belabor the point with the sidewall core, right? I think it's kind of one of those things where we, there's not much you can tell us until it's been released and we'll just we'll take it from there. But maybe just one last question around around Makuyu one. Uh, just regarding how the state of the hole that's been left and the stability that, that the state of stability it's in. So it's been left plugged and abandoned. Um, is it permanently plugged or are you able to re-enter it later on? No, so that's that, that's been PNA'd. Um, wellhead's been removed, so we'll be able to reuse that wellhead uh, in a future well. And to be honest, given the given the borehole stability issues that we had with Makuyu 1, re-entering that is a fool's errand. Uh, you get a you get a lot of companies or a lot of attempts to go and and, and redo it. We, I mean, it was cased down to the nine and you know the nine and five S and shoe, and we could have potentially redrilled that. But I think what we've you know we'll probably getting onto why we've picked this location for Makuyu um, two as well. But I think um, given given the issues that we had, and it was an uh, a number of fronts. It was the mud weight, the mud composition, and the, the the chemistry, and then also the cementing performance with with Makuyu One meant that you know trying to suspend it and come back later and reuse that well bore was, was you know just just wasn't the right decision. And so, um, given this given the state it was in, we would have had to redrill everything, demobile the services. Uh, and come back and essentially get no new information. All you're doing is twinning that eight and a half inch section that we drilled. Uh, you know, we think 
we're better off now with McHugh 2 going to an, an, another part of the field and getting new information there and still being able to go and retrieve a fluid sample. So from a cost perspective, um, it's probably not much more incrementally from re-drilling that section to, to uh, a fresh drill for McHugh 2. And really that's around the logistics costs and what it costs to mobilize equipment and people and, and get everything moving. So I think now we've come in with a better well design for Makuyu 2. Uh, we've changed up and we needed time as well to do that. So change up the mud chemistry for Makuyu 2 and the fluid program, uh, refine the well design. We've got um, core pressure work that we've been able to do now to, to get the mud weights right. Uh, and again, we'll, you know, we can discuss what, what's changed from Makuyu 2. So Makuyu 1, we, you know, we, we at some stage, we're going to go back to that part of the field and, and drill again, but it won't be, it won't be at, at Makuyu 1. And we might drill a different type of well, depending on, on what we're targeting. So drilling deviated. Makuyu um, 1 for the very first one on the basin, drilling a 33-degree incline well um was was pretty spicy um <laughs> especially especially because we were doing it using mud motors we weren't using rotary steerables uh you know all the all the technology from a drilling point of view so it's, uh, believe it or not things could have gone a lot worse from a whole stability point of view um so i think uh, making this next well simpler, um, fulfilling those objectives uh, that I mentioned, going back to prove, prove up the discovery with Makuyu 2 uh, is fine. But, uh, you know, we'll be able to go and revisit where Makuyu 1 is. And we will we will do on that. That southern flank's a big area uh, as well. So we'll go, and, we'll go and do that at some stage. But I think moving to a new part of the field for Makuyu 2 is a good, you know, good move for this, for this next well. Mm -hmm. Just one more here to return to the question of hole stability, and I'll turn it over to Jamie to discuss Makuyu 2. But this will be, I'm, I'm just uh, reading this verbatim from, the, from a geo, so I apologize if, if I've missed something here. But uh, just geo is asking here, please give a quick rundown on the root causes of the time-dependent hole stability issues, not the differential sticking in both M1 and the sidetrack. Were they related 100% okay. of mud properties, or is there a basin-wide or regional stress regime involved? Uh, and uh, how exactly does Invic Invictus propose to address that issue in Makuyu 2? Sure. So the, the, the time dependency of this, because the, the, the borehole did hold up relatively well. So um, in, the, in the motherboard, when we drilled through the pebbly arcos, the mud weight was wrong. So we were way too high, and we ended up taking some losses in the, in the pebbly arcos. Um, so we had to put in what's called LCM loss control material. And that is basically stuff to, to plug up any of the, the, the fractures that you've created. Because essentially you, with the mud weight too high, you fracture the reservoir and you start to lose your drilling fluid out, um, out into the formation. So we ended up plugging up a bunch of that and, and, and running that through throughout the pebbly arcos. Then we, we drilled the, in through the upper angua, by the time that we ended up, um, and, and then we logged it, we had those issues with the the, the filter cake on the side of the wellbore. Uh, if you remember those photos from 
some previous releases and that's why we couldn't get get fluid samples we then we were waiting for um an additional sampling tool because we we um you know that was late in being mobilized we then deepened the well down to 3900 meters by the time we went back then to to log that deepened section the wellbore had been open for, for in that section for about 26 days which is a really long time and we were drilling with water-based mud so what what tends to happen is that if you've got clays in your in your formation those tend to react and they start to swell with the with the water-based mud and that's what happened um, with us eventually um we didn't get we didn't get as much swelling initially because we dumped that filter cake up the side of the the wellbore and nothing could get through it um because it was so thick so but eventually you know it, it started to break down and swell and and we were also inclined as well which also creates issues with your because you're going to get low sides of the hole where um you know, when you're running drill pipe up and down it, it's going to scrape and you're going to break some of that off and eventually mm. it's going to start to break down. So we, because of the issues that we had whilst we were drilling and, and we had to, to stop and, and do all of that loss circulation control um, with three or four uh, losses, lost uh, um, incidences that we had, plus deepening and everything else, you know, that it was just, the borehole was just open too long. So the next time, you know, if you look at our, um, our plan to, to drill that eight and a half inch section and then log it, you know, that should only take us from the time that we start drilling the eight and a half inch section to, to when we TD should be less than a week. So you're always, you're always, you're always conscious of borehole stability issues when you're drilling, whether you're drilling with, um, especially water-based mud, synthetic, because you don't have that water in it, you, your clays tend to not react and you don't get that, that swelling effect. So getting back to what we've done to address that. Um, so again, now we've got some data from, from a QU1. We've got through all of the cuttings that we've gathered, we can have a look and we've done XRD so, um, on it to understand what the minerality of what we what we've encountered is, so that we can design the mud system around um, to ensure that we minimise the potential uh, of the mud reacting with the formation. So we've changed the mud chemistry now for the next well, and that is um, and also a lot less solids now because we we've, we've also got data on the pore pressure regime from those uh, pressure samples that we took. We understand now that that we're in a normally pressured environment and not, you know, we don't have to weight the mud as high as we did. And that probably also played a, a role in the borehole stability issues that we were just way overbalanced in the in, in McCree one. So we've now had a complete um, pore pressure regime done by an independent um, specialist. You know, this is what they do across, you know, using McCree one and projected it across the basin and, and where we're drilling. So we've now got a, a mud weight that's designed for each, you know, sort of section of the of the hole has been calibrated in a much, um, you know, now we've got some data. Uh, the mud chemistry has been changed, the mud weights have been changed, and um, less solid. So we're not going to need barite, which which we had to to get the mud weight up that high for these other sections. So 
that filter cake that we had also shouldn't be an issue and, and we shouldn't have the react the reactivity in some parts of the reservoir or, or not reservoir in the in the um, shale sections where you've got a lot of the clays. So I think that actually is a decent transition here. We have a whole section on mud coming up, but I, I think I'll hand it over to Jamie here. We'll discuss Makuyu 2 and, and specifically, as you've kind of been touching on here already, kind of in, you know, guessing where we're headed here, but just how Makuyu 1 influences your decision-making process for Makuyu 2. Jamie, do you want to uh, take it away here? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess one of the main changes is the original proposed M2 location was Kind of off to the northwest a couple of k's yep. and uh, now you have it as you know three or four kilometers to the northeast and looking at the the new top angle map the structure appears to be somewhat different than uh, in previous presentations and m2 now looks to be drilling on a what looks like a three-way against a fault you know with several hundred meters of closure was that the reason for the for the change to target one of the more obvious closures on the map? Was it driven by access to the surface sites, for example? No, so none, none of it's really surface dependent. Um, okay. You know, if you have a look at, at the at the photos that we have of the, I mean, you can see from an access point of view, it's very very easy. The topography is very simple and straightforward, so we can we can really, you know, drill anywhere from a uh, unless we're close to um you know someone's homestead you know we'll we'll but it's pretty sparsely populated out there we're, we're unlikely particularly around Maku uh and there's a very there's a very subtle expression of the anticline that you can see on on Google Earth where the vegetation changes um right. around Maku um so the the main reason that we've moved from from where we initially you know uh, postulated where it was going to go uh it's sort of sticking on that southern flank, which is up, I think we talked about in in um, in one of my previous webinars, where we there's there's been a couple of reasons for that change. Firstly, we've had um, velocity data now that we gathered from Makuyu One uh, from the VSP, where that's had a uh, quite a subtle effect on on um, on the seismic reprocessing. So that's been one one minor thing. The 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 big the big change has been our, a difference in our our pick uh, in some of the shallower sections in that horse block uh, that you mentioned. So we've had a different. Um, previously, we were picking it uh, the <clears> top <throat> down a little lower in in that um, in that seismic section. If you have a look at that release that we put out, and that's pulled everything up, and it looks a, a bit more sensible from a pick perspective now. Um, and and in that location, where that horse block is, that, that three-way that you mentioned, it is shallower by you know by about four hundred meters. So drilling up dips, you know, always a good idea. Um, the just the I guess the nature of that block means that we can drill a uh, near near vertical well, so that the trajectory, uh, the maximum deviation is only going to be twelve degrees. Which is basically near vertical, so it's a much simpler well. And then, probably also, given the shallower nature of of that block, it means that we can, and and the lower amount of deviation means that we can actually test the lower angle 
in this location where we've where we've picked that. So that means that's another um, you know potential um, reservoir interval that we can then test as well. So that that's what really factored into our um, into our thinking. I think also what's fed into that is now that we've got an understanding of the of the source rock quality and distribution, we're pretty comfortable that this source rock is pervasive over the basin. So you're always concerned about where's my source rock? How is it migrating into the, into the structure and going too far away from your well controlled? There's always a concern about migration distance and, and, and where your, where your source is. <laughs> so given what we've seen, you know, we're very comfortable and, and, you know, think that this is going to be pretty pervasive. Uh, I think some of the mud gas has also indicated to us that there's multiple charge histories, there's multiple source rock intervals. Um, so we've got both uh, local um, and intraformational uh, source rock and, and charge, where some of these some of these intervals are, are self-sourcing within the angwa, and we've also got some deeper charge within the basin um, elsewhere on the flanks where the source rock is is deeper and in the gas window now. And we've got that dry gas influence that's that's come in uh, as well, in, in addition to the, the liquids that have been generated. So that there's a there's a pretty big kitchen in the north um, as you get towards the Mozambique border and the Ganona Sincline, where we think that that is what's feeding the dry gas into the structure. So that's got to come from the north all the way across. So again, we think it's, from a migration point of view, fairly low risk now. And that's what's given us, again, the, the uh, I guess the comfort to kind of step over into, into another block and go and test that. So that'll provide us with um, the ability to test the low angwa, get some information in a different part of the field. And, you know, we've got to, we've got to try and characterize this basin as, as quickly as we can. Uh, as well, and staying on that southern flank wouldn't have given us any. It would have given us some new information, but I think we, you know, in terms of bang for your buck, this would be better um, for us going to the north. We would have had to do it at some stage anyway. Well, those the changes in the picks was that driven by the biostratigraphy data, or did you do any kind of rock physics work, like QI work? It's, it's mainly the QI stuff. Okay. Um, Biostrat data. Is pretty sparse, unfortunately. It's it. We haven't. Full Permian thing. Uh, well, the Permian we haven't penetrated yet. Oh, um, right. that's okay. that's deeper. But there's not a lot of biostrat. You know, there's there's barely any bugs in. Um, you know, from from what we can, you know, what's come out of the cuttings. Uh, so that that hasn't given us much in terms of the age of what we understood pre-drill versus post-drill. So it, it's fairly sparse from a, from a palynology point of view. You mentioned the dry gas to the north versus liquids from elsewhere. Uh, do you think that re reflects the different source rock types or just different parts of the basin or in different parts of the kind of petroleum generation cycle? You know, some yeah. deeper or hotter? So the, the the quality of the source rock is probably a lot more liquid prone than we than we thought pre-drill. Um, we do have different intervals of source, so it, it there is a little bit of variation in the in the um, 
I guess, the liquids yield uh, of that source rock, but it's mainly down to thermal maturity. So if you're up shallow in the oil window, it's generating liquids. As you get deeper, it's generating more gas. So in that, in the northern part in the kitchen, that that and you, and you can see that from the structure maps, it kind of plunges down, and we and that that depot center in the basin uh, is anywhere between twelve and sixteen kilometers thick in terms of sedimentary mm -hmm. uh, thickness. So you know, absolutely huge. So as you get as you plunge off to the north, you get a lot of that angler that's that's buried in that dry gas window, and it's going to just migrate straight up into into the um, Makuyu structure, and it's got you know Makuyu because of the size of it, it's two hundred square kilometers, but also because of the vertical relief, it's just got a huge fetch area which just you know sucks everything in from from everywhere around the basin um, in the north. Uh, until we start getting further east then, and, and this is why we're shooting seismic in the in the eastern part, because you've got a little bit of a saddle there, and then you've got a, the opportunity for some of those structures in the east then to start fetching, um, have got a different fetch area, and and uh, out of the, sh the migration, um, shadow is not the right word, but the migration pathway of, of, of Makuyu. Yeah, the focus of the trap versus the kitchen. At the time of hydrocarbon generation, that's the key thing. Uh, yeah, so it's, yeah, sorry, there, there is some, there is some proto some proto structure, and again, we maybe we should probably keep this as simple as we can uh, from a from a terminology point of view, just just for the benefit of, of everyone. So that that was always one of the key risks going in pre you know pre drill with McQueen one. We were unsure of the timing of the trap versus versus charge um, and so the from the uh, some of the isopack thickness maps that we've generated so so that means if you flatten it on um, on an age and and where you've picked that structure we've had some structure in Makuyu for quite a long time um, which has meant that it's been trapping for since it's been in the generation window for a couple of hundred million years and we think most of it, though, has happened around the Cretaceous time. Okay. Um, but but now we've also got source rock that's in the present day generation window, which means it's actively accumulating uh, present day. So we've got. Well, that's good. Yeah. So um, there's been, as you said, there's lots of source rock intervals. It's not just one we're relying on, and that means that. It kind of doesn't matter where it sits in time now. You've got source rock somewhere um, within those intervals actively actively charging it. So yeah, I'll move on a bit to um I mean to very broadly summarize, I think there's a lot of concerns with you know, monitoring the operation in the next while. Um, there's you know a lot of questions about having the appropriate specialist skills on site versus having them remote. Mm -hmm. Are there plans to change anything up and have more specialist staff on site, specifically, you know, like a poor pressure person, a petrophysicist, for example? Or, you know, I mean, in this day and age, a lot can be done remotely, I guess, because it's just looking yeah. at digits on a computer. You don't have to be on the drilling deck watching the digits arrive, you know, but I think. Um, there's 
a lot, a lot of concerns about getting the sample and proving discovery basically so yeah. what's kind of in place to ensure that so the, the there's been quite a number of changes for this for this campaign and i think that the the failure to get a sample in the first world wasn't due to um any lack of oversight or monitoring whether it was at the well site or or remotely it was a function of the drilling conditions, the the mud weight, and tool failures. And if we if we talk about the tool failures, it that was that was not a lack of of QAQC initially. Um, uh, yeah, things were late and things were rushed. But for the first few runs, those tools worked. Um, we couldn't get a sample because we had that thick filter cake on it. Uh, which meant nothing was getting, you know, we were getting, we weren't going to get anything out of it. Didn't didn't matter what kind of tools we had on site. So those and these things happen, um, and it's it's one of the challenges of a remote operation is that you don't have access to to contingencies very quickly. So having said that, though, we have gone in with a much bigger contingency plan for this next well. So firstly, we've changed providers from a, a wireline point of view. Um, because there were some aspects that we were unhappy with um, in the first well. Those tools are all going un undergoing independent QAQC before they leave the supply base from the, and, and they come to us so that we know at least, you know, they've been through all of their checks, all the run histories, any issues that they've had previously, we're going to know about, and they've got time to, to rectify any issues. They'll also be present before we rig up the wireline unit uh, as well and do further checks once it gets to the well site. Because again, we've got to transport these tools um, by road across the continent. So there's always, you know, they're sensitive, there's <coughs> vibrational issues uh, that can play a part in, in the electronics and some of these. And, and they are operating at very high pressures and very high temperatures and you're going to get failures and it happens. And that's why you have backups. From a, a uh, a personnel point of view, um, we vet all the CVs of all the engineers that come out from from the service providers, and and we reject the ones that we don't think are, you know, are experienced enough. So we've got experienced engineers that are coming out to the job. Uh, our well site geologists as well are used to running remote operations and 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 being self sufficient, because you do have. And I've been involved in instances as well where I've been one of the remote people out specifically for the wireline job where you've had comms issues and you can't, and then you're responsible for making the decisions without that remote support from time. So we've got capable engineers, capable well site geos. Um, we've got also will be remotely monitoring the operations from, from time. And we've got the ability to see on the engineer's screen, exactly what they're looking at. Open, open phone line. Uh, well, it's not phones anymore, uh, but you know, Teams chat to 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 chat with the guys in the wireline shack, uh, or the well site geos who are there to so that they you know we can have a, a an open discussion and dialogue. And they've got a you know in Perth they've got a real time centre here. I've spent many many hours in it um, on on fluid sampling jobs uh, in a previous life. So, and, and I know, you know, the guy who's going to be sitting in there with me from, from the service provider as well. And 
so we've got, you know, we're covered from a from an engineering point of view and an operations point of view uh, in, 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 in that respect, as far as we can. So the, the, the tool issues, you're gonna have, you know, tools fail and you've got to have backups in place and everything else. So we have got a much fuller evaluation suite as well, because before we were going out with a, a very, uh, a, a more appropriate, uh, data acquisition uh, suite for a wildcat exploration world. You can't just throw everything at it because, you know, it's expensive. Wildline, from a cost point of view, is about a third of what it costs from a valuation perspective, excluding the logistics I'm talking about. Costs you about, for where we are in a remote operation, costs about a third of what our drilling cost is. So that's all the directional drilling, the cement, the rig, everything else. So it's an expensive um, suite of uh, and an expensive product line that you're running. So we 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 do take a lot of attention to it and a lot of care. But it's our primary means of evaluating what is in your you know in your well bore. Um, sorry, Jamie, carry on. I think uh, Matthew had a few questions on the kind of nitty gritty of the sampling plan in a success sure. case. Yep. Uh, he's muted. Thanks, guys. Trying to be polite that I forget about it there. Uh, yeah, no, uh, Jamie's right. Just questions around. So, I mean, discussing the kind of the goal of, of MQU2, right? I mean, this is obviously going to be a, a hypotheticals through and through. Uh, but I mean, <laughs> Maybe the question is, what's your what's your core target? Which I think is that the market knows. Maybe you can discuss that. But then, I mean, is the ultimate aim of this drill? I mean, what is you know what does capital S success look like? I mean, is there a potential for four separate discoveries in the post Andy, the Pebble Arcos, Upper Angua, and Lower Angua, or or what are you kind of hoping to 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 get out of this uh, out of Makuya too? Yeah. So so there is that potential um, for four separate. Uh, accumulations. It's not uncommon to have hydrocarbons at different, you know, different stratigraphic levels. So, you know, from a discovery point of view, you just need one of those to work uh, and to get a fluid sample to surface from one of those. So, and I think from a uh, a Makuyu perspective, because the structure is so big and 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 so extensive, that means that if any one of those that we can prove that it, it's it's material. So obviously we want to prove up as many as we can. So because we're in the early part of of this basin, you need to bring fluid samples to surface from each one of those to to clear a discovery. Now it starts to get a little bit complicated because we've got lots of reservoir intervals, uh, particularly in the Pibiacos and the and the Upper Angua. So from a from a discovery point of view, if you get fluid samples out of one of those reservoir intervals, but then you have a pressure gradient profile and you get that with your with your pressure points and they lie on the same gradient, you can then deduce, well, this is actually the same column. And then you only need to get one sample out of those. I think for us, that's unlikely just given the, the vertical extent of the upper angle, it's you know, 900 meters or something. It's, it's pretty unlikely that we've got a, a 900 meter column um so it's likely to be some separate 
accumulations within that because we've got some that we've got you know probably 100 meters in between on average every cycle that we have of of, of reservoir source seal um so we're unlikely you know if we just get out of one reservoir great result um so we've got a we, we've got a um and again this all goes into your planning pre-job so we've got fluid uh sampling chambers and so these are pressurized chambers that you've got to bring back to the surface so we've got 18 of them um and generally when you are taking samples you take a you take a primary and you take a backup because sometimes you have issues with the, the sample chambers, the, the seals closing and firing. Uh, and also in the volumes of, of samples, we've got um, what are called MPSRs, they're 450 cc's uh, of in terms of volume. And you need to get enough to go around to do all the analysis that you that you want to do. So typically you take two or three at each at each station. So that our sampling will be informed by what we encounter in, in, in Makuyu 2 number of reservoirs we have, which ones are hydrocarbon bearing, which ones we choose to get, and we'll obviously prioritize the ones we think we need to go and get samples out of. So if we have um, a lot in, in the upper angua, some of the pebliacos, obviously we want to go and get pebliacos and upper angua, so we're going to have to sacrifice then assuming that we can get samples out of every one of them, we're going to have to sacrifice some of the other ones in the in the upper angua. Uh, so people say, well, why don't you just go and get more sample chambers? There's not, it's not as simple as that. They are in short supply. They're expensive. My God, to keep these things on, on rental, um, you know, they, they are hugely expensive. Um, and I think if we get enough and we, and we'll be able to get pressure points and then prove that it's a hydrocarbon gradient out of them and some some of them will probably use the fluid analyzer on board and we'll just pump out and we won't actually take the sample. So there's a number of ways we'll be able to kind of prove up some additional ones beyond the ones we get fluid samples out of. So you can't you can't go and get everything. We're not just targeting one reservoir like you, you know, maybe some of our, uh, I think most of our investors are probably Australian based and Perth Basin wise, using the Kenya as an example, that's one reservoir, you know, so you can go and get Take one six pack, you've got samples up. It's one, you know, just one column. It's quite simple. We, we've got a much more complicated um, setup in the in the Kaborabasa. So we've got a, we don't have an unlimited budget. Uh, we can't keep these things on rental for forever. Um, we can't get enough of, you know, we've had to big borrow and steal to get even 18 chambers. Uh, and so you can't just have, as much as you want. And then also you can only fit a particular number on each run because of a weight limitation that you have with your tools when, you, when you're running wireline as well. So that could mean if you were to get any more than that, you've got to go and do a separate run. You're then getting into, um, again, going back to the borehole stability, you're, you're starting to add more risk the longer your program takes. And sampling does take a long time. You've got to sit on the wall, on the borehole wall, cleaning up, you know, sometimes for several hours to get a, a clean sample. So it's all about managing risk, making sure that you get what you come for and getting an appropriate amount of data. No, thank you. I think that that, that is enlightening and provides color for people, 18 fluid sampling chambers. Um, no, thank you. I guess maybe a, a follow-up question then. I mean, let's assume that there is a pay zone encountered. 
Will you be running an MDD tool on that interval to confirm movable pay uh, prior to drilling ahead, or what's your plan there? No, so so the the, the base plan is to drill the section uh, to TD, and then you go in and run your line. So you don't just run in with an MDT tool or RFT tool, whichever provider that you're using, because you've then got to condition the hole for logging. Um, so you've got to you know, circulate out your mind, circulate bottoms up, spot your logging pill, pull the drill string out, get the one line unit set up, go and get your primary logs, which are your gamma ray, resistivity, um, density and neutron. And then you've also, you've then got to log that section, pull that out, put your MDT tool together and run that in the hole. And you also need to drill the logging pocket as well so that you can get the tools over that interval. So that from a time efficiency point of view and a risk point of view, that's not that's not the way to do it. You you drill through all the way to bottom and then you log everything at once from a, um, your primary logs. We've also upsized our data acquisition program to help us uh, again. So we're gonna be getting um, NMR, which is nuclear, magnetic resonance so that that helps us that will provide us some extra information on on uh, porosity and, and indications of permeability and then also fmi which is uh, formation microimaging log which um, is like an image of your of your borehole it needs some interpretation but it also helps it helps you refine your picks for for sampling and and, and everything else and just gives you some more information so we're going to run those as well before we go and sample so if you if you stop every time you encounter hydrocarbons, it will actually add on a lot more time and a lot more risk to your to your drilling program because you you know just whip it out of the hole and and run your MDT uh, probe and, and sampling chambers and it takes a lot more than that to to do it. So probably a follow-on question from that would be, well, why don't you do real-time um, sampling while drilling? Uh, I've tried to use it before in previous programs, and uh, again, with from a risk and a cost point of view, it adds a lot more onto your program. We're always going to go and, and run our MDT anyway, uh, just because it's it's a, a more comprehensive program, and you you add a lot more jewelry onto your bottom hole assembly, and if you lose that. Or if you plant one of those tools or lose or lose, um, uh, you know that bottom hole assembly, some you know, then probably north of seven million dollars that you leave behind in the hole. So never uh, uh, we I found it you know from personal experience and some of our team, it's not it's not all it's cracked up to be, and we're always going to go and run MDT anyway. So all it would do is is add time and cost and risk to our program. Thank you, Scott. Um, a bit more specific here in terms of zones of interest. There's a couple of questions regarding Pebbly Arcos and the Upper Angua. Pebbly, first, um, could you provide any further comments on the Pebbly Arcos's net to gross potential? Yeah, so the we saw quite a lot of stacked amalgamated channels in the Pebbly Arcos. Some of it was up to sort of 60 meters thick. Um, and that's high net to gross in those. So in those individual units. So I think 
rather than talking about the Pebliacos as a whole, we've got separate um, reservoir intervals within that. And within those reservoir intervals, they're high net gross, as you'd expect in, a, in an amalgamated channel. Um, so, but if you take it as an overall out of the Pebliacos, not that it's relevant because you wouldn't, you know, you net to gross in an overall system. You're concentrating on your reservoirs because that's where your where your pay comes from. Um, that might be 20, 25, 30%, something like that on an overall basis, but within those individual reservoirs, it's it's pretty high. Thank you. Just sorry, just taking notes from my own self here too. Um, and so follow-up question here then. Could you comment on whether you've seen viable uh, intra pebliarchals trapping mechanisms? Yeah, we have. So we've got we have got um, we've got seal uh, in the in the pebliarchos as well above those reservoir units. So they do form they do form valid traps. Excellent. And then maybe I'll just switch over to Upper Angua here. Um, could you comment to see uh, if indicted, do you see any potential for oil to be reservoir down dip of gas condensate accumulations in the lower upper angle reservoirs? Definitely. So looking at the, the source rock we've encountered, the fluorescence, the, the mud gas, that'll points to, to that scenario where we were drilling up on the, uh, so on that on that southern flank, um, drilling up against the fault, and as I as I mentioned before, we've had instant uh, multiple uh, periods of charge, and some of the dry gas has probably come in later, and forced the liquid hydrocarbons down dip. So because gas is a lighter buoyancy than than oil, it tends to migrate up to the top of the structure, and then it will push your liquid hydrocarbons, which have a heavier buoyancy and your water, which is even heavier, further down dip. So we think that's what we saw um, in Makuyu 1, where we've had had that scenario where, you know, down dip, we're gonna have some more liquid hydrocarbons from where we are now. So we drilled crystal in the Southern fault block, if you follow what I'm saying. When you say liquid hydrocarbons, you mean oil or condensate? Yeah, light, light oil. Light oil. Condensate. So I don't want to get delve too deep into hydrocarbon phase behavior here, but we're on the, on the verge of. <laughs> <laughs> we're we we are we are on the verge of volatile oil and very rich gas condensate. So. Uh, the, the, the CGR estimate that, that we gave of 135 barrels per million scuffs at the upper end, if you, if you get any higher than that, you're actually switching then over to, to volatile oil. So what I mean by that is in the reservoir, because um, when you get a sample out and, and, and the mud gas, you get everything. With, with volatile oil, you've got, it, it exists as a, as a liquid in its, in its phase. And when it comes up to surface, it liberates a lot of gas and leaves liquid behind, but it's very light. With uh, gas condensate at that higher end, it exists as a gas in its form in the reservoir. And when it comes up to surface, it will liberate the liquids out and drop and drop that out as, as, as condensate. Um, 
but they they at the points and the pressures and the temperatures that we are in some of those reservoirs that is very very close where we're moving between those two those two realms so we're right on the edge of what's called the phase envelope in some of the deeper reservoirs we're in the gas condensate um, phase but right in the in the uh, the shallowest reservoirs in the upper angua I think we're probably in that volatile oil window, but it's hard to tell from mud gas data because it's not a it's not a virgin sample. It hasn't been captured at reservoir conditions. It's come up to surface. So it's, you know, we're right on the borderline there. So well, you know, maybe we'll we'll pause there and there's there's a I think I'll pass it back to Jamie. And Jamie's gonna ask you some questions around just mud and your and your choices with that, that and then maybe more importantly, we'll move on to the discussions of, of drilling and flow testing. But I'll, Jamie, I'll let you take over here. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think you've touched upon the mud choices, you know, changing the chemistry, the mud weight. So maybe we won't dwell on it too much. Um, but, you know, from your, from your drone video, we can see you drilled some, we dug some mud pits. So you're probably using a water based mud this time. We um, are. And so we, we we have brought on um a new mud mud engineer for this program so he he was involved in um in the lockachar campaign in kenya with with tallow and african okay. oil so he's reviewed all of the you know all of our drilling data the cuttings the the mud reports and everything else and you know from and we did have a have a long hard and think about okay well what are we going to do with the mud system are we going to switch it up to a synthetic based mud or an oil based mud are we only going to do it for some of the reservoir sections? Um, and his recommendation was that we can we can drill this with water-based mud. We just need to change up some of the chemistry. And that, you know, the mud, mud is synthetic-based mud is one, very expensive. Two, you've got to have all the supplies that you need when you need it. Um, so you've got to pre-buy all of this and and it you know, it comes in in barrels uh, because it is actual or pre-made mud in barrels. Whereas with water-based mud, you mix it up by adding the chemicals into you know those those reservoirs that that you can see um, that we have um, have put in place at the pad. So it's a much more manageable scenario from a, a water-based mud if you've you know if you can get away with drilling with water-based mud, and we think we can. So. I mean, it doesn't preclude us from going to synthetic in the future, but I think just for this for this campaign, given given the advice that we've had from someone who went through that Lockheed Child campaign and said, you know, very similar in terms of the the um, the makeup of the geology in terms of its um, uh, type of geology, um, the clays that that um, were encountered that that we can do this with with water based mud. By changing some of the chemistry. Cool. It's good that you brought that experience in from you know, analogous basins. Um, I guess let's move on to these, you know, the spudding of the well. So <clears throat> it looks like you started moving the equipment to the new site. Are you on track to spud in say September or before the start of the dry season? I think it, sorry, the wet season, I think is October. To March, is that correct? Uh, no, wet, wet season. I mean, the first rains you generally get kind of end of November, 
and you'll get a few yeah. showers and, and it doesn't really set in until kind of mid-December time. Um, so we, we're well and truly within the dry, dry season window here. Um, okay. So we, the rig mover started. That should complete probably early next week. Um, well, the, the move will conclude before that, but the rig up of everything will, will, will be done probably by early to mid next week. Um, from there, we've got to do some acceptance testing of the rig and commissioning of the new mud tanks that have been brought in. Again, you know, part of the part of the challenge we had with the, the previous well was the, getting the mud tanks ready um, to deal with the mud weight that we were using. They were old. We needed to ensure that they weren't going to fail given the, the, the mud weight that we're using. The agitation system in it also wasn't ideal, so we got very inconsistent um, mud weights throughout the throughout the section because it, when you're mixing up water-based mud, obviously you're adding chemicals to it. And you know, if you imagine if it if the agitator system's not working properly, you get some bits that haven't um, dissolved properly in, in the mud and some bits are lighter, which which does create issues. So that's all now uh, been replaced and a and a brand new mud tank system has been brought in. So we'll uh, get that commissioned and, and set up and we've got to We've got to go through our rig acceptance testing and, and checklist to make sure that from a rig perspective, everything's ready to drill before we before we accept that. Um, the, the services, the new services that we have mobilized or, or brought in for this campaign, mud logging. So that should arrive. Um, that that unit. So we brought in again part of the part of the changes for this. Um, for this campaign have been to, you know, we were very, uh, I think the mud logging was one of the uh, big letdowns from the last campaign and we lost a lot of valuable information because the the, the mud logging unit didn't perform um, in, in the previous well. So Geolog, who mud logging is their core business, that's what they do and they're, they're, they're very, very experienced. So it's going to get the care and attention that it needs. So their unit should arrive end of August. Uh, so that's also got to get hooked up and, and, and set up. And then the other services are wireline. So that, you know, they're, they're at the base at the moment. Those tools are being um, function checked, assessed, getting and getting serviced. Our QAQC people will, will then go in and, and check those before they depart. And they're already part of that, that servicing uh, process at the moment and checking that everything is, is getting done. And then the directional drilling equipment um, that starts to move pretty soon. A lot of that gets um, gets air freighted. So, from a from a timing point of view, most of the stuff we're getting we're waiting for now is either on the water and close to close to getting into a port, and and then coming up to us, getting driven or getting air freighted. So, from a from a risk point of view of of a spud date. Everything's on track for, you know, probably around the mid-September at this point. Okay. How long do you have? Sorry, how long do you have the rig for, and do you have the option to extend if necessary? We do have the, so we've got the rig for as long as we want it. Um, so we did extend, um, put in place a contract extension with Exalo for for this well. So we've got it for this well for as long as we like. What what we've been also then 
you know, kind of looking at over the last few months is how does the how does the program now pan out for for next year and and beyond that? And I think <clears throat> looking at the at the rig availability in the region, uh, the effort that it takes to mobilize a rig and and bring it in and and get comfortable with it means that rig retention for us is is um, is paramount. And Exalo are happy to to extend that. They've been a you know great company to to work with, and, and we're really happy with them. So the rig has proven itself from a capability point of view. I think um, you know it it performed better than we thought in terms of it of where we thought we'd be able to to get to from a depth and a and a um, walk and drag perspective with, with the rig. So it's capable of generate of drilling the um, the depths that we require at the moment and performing as we require. So, you know, for the foreseeable future, we'd like to to keep that rig in country and Exile are happy to keep it there. It's just really negotiating a, a, a contract extension now. And, um, you know, we're, we're in progress with that at the moment. So, If you need to sidetrack McCuyi um, too, do you have plans for that if necessary? And then also, in a success case scenario, do you plan to to abandon the well and flow test later and go off and drill another well somewhere else or you know, another prospect? Or you know, are you gonna just put that on hold and go for the flow testing before drilling anything yeah. else? So again, this is this is now um We'll come to the strategy. I'll just address the sidetrack question first. So we've got, from a contingency point of view, we've got everything um, that we need. We probably have to order a little bit more mud, but we've got a, a, a mud supplier now that's based in in South Africa, and, and that means we, you know, we had to go to them in an emergency last year because the, you know, the chemicals that we ordered from our our service provider only turned up in December. So, uh, so we were using. We were using additional mud anyway. From um, that, that, it's all the same stuff uh, from an from a, a standards perspective and APIs. So that's been a cheaper and, and much easier solution to put in place. So that would probably be the only thing that that's required. We've got enough bits. We've got enough casing. We've got enough. You know, everything else is is in track. We've got a a specialist uh, side track bit as well. Now that that um, we moved for the previous well, but didn't end up using because we managed to kick it off um, after, you know, after four attempts, I think, in trying to kick off because the cement job was was poor and we won't, we won't get into all of that now because we, we're getting sidetracked far in the pan. Um, so we've got everything we need if we need to sidetrack, um, apart from some mud, which we which we need to order, but that's not far away. Um, you know, it's a few days away by road, and you'd have to do uh, a few things anyway before you before you'd need it. Um, then getting back to what we do with the well um, post drilling. So, from a flow testing point of view, there's a number of ways we can do it, and, and depends on what we encounter. We've got a base idea of what we'd like to do, but um, again, we don't want to be we, we don't want to be too fixated. We've we've got some flexibility in how we preserve this well for, for flow testing. So the two options, we either run a, a seven inch liner. Uh, so we, we'd run the liner, cement that in place, which, which means the well is 
you know, uh, essentially static and, and it can sit there for, for quite a long time. You'd then come back and, and perforate each of those zones and you'd start at the bottom and then work your way up uh, and, and test them individually. So that requires perforation guns. It requires um, a lot of packers to isolate each of those zones. You'd need test separator and all the you know well test package to, to be mobilized um, so that you can do a proper flow test. It's not you know it's not like a you know, kind of onshore US scenario where you it's pretty agricultural and and you're just hooking it into a flow system that, that's nearby and they're testing um, or into a tank. It's, um, you know, we, we're doing this to, to gather dynamic reservoir information. So, and... And you would need the rig. Would you need the rig for the flow test or can you use... You could use something like so depending on how you suspend it. So um, if we suspended, with, if we ran the liner, uh, and then come back and, and perforate it later, then you can you can use um, something smaller and lightweight, which we need to mobilize. Um, a small little workover unit or coil tubing unit or or, or a, a jacking platform. We used to use that in the Perth Basin for some of the stuff. So that would be a lot smaller, a lot more manageable um, than a rig. The other way to suspend it would be to, to basically plug it back to the Nine and five eighths inch shoe, so above the where we're planning to. Um, again, depends on what interval we're, we're talking about here. I'm, I'm just talking about the the, the lower section of the well here. Um, you could plug it back to the shoe and then essentially sidetrack and re-drill that that reservoir section again, uh, and then you could you could come back and test it, and and you do that straight away. As soon as you finish drilling, so that's that's the other way to do it. You have um, kind of a zone of interest, or is it kind of like trying to pick your favorite kid, or you know? Well, yeah. So we need to, and that's why we're not doing it immediately because we need to go and and basically analyze and get get the right equipment in. If we're going to perforate it, we need to have. You know, you've got to um, design the guns and the string and what kind of charge you're going to use, the phasing of it, um, get the test spread ready. So it's not, again, it's not onshore, onshore US. Yeah, it, it, we're a remote operation and it requires a lot of planning to do things properly. So um, you're kind of... Your and we picked design of interest. It, it, well, testing is expensive as well. So, you know, you're not going to go and test... If, you know, if it's if it's six zones, it's pretty unlikely that you're going to test all six. You'll go and prioritize your main ones. You you might do one, two, or three at most. Um, in, in in my opinion, get that information, and then you might do maybe you'll do a commingled one all at the end because you you want to test your individual zones and understand what your far field reservoir properties are telling you, uh, permeability. Um, Connected volumes, yeah. rather than just a pure flow rate point of view. So, you can test wells where you just you know you want a headline number and you're not looking at anything else, or you can you, you know you you do a a more thorough job of gathering your data properly, downhole gauges, um, shutting them in for periods to look at the buildups, 
understanding your connected volumes. So that that does take a lot more time. It's a lot more expensive. And we then also need to have a look and see moving into, into next year and into a future campaign, what what that looks like because keeping a rig and services on on standby whilst you're doing a longer term test like that starts to get expensive and it starts to make more sense then to have a a much smaller unit where you're only looking at wireline perforating to do that and then also if our rig is tied up with well testing that means we're not drilling as well and i got a you know we've got a lot we have a lot of drilling to do um in this basin and we've we do have we we can we can go through the wet season. It's not ideal, and it starts to get pretty pretty messy and complicated with depending on where we are in the basin and moving rigs and and that side. So that's going to also form part of our our broader strategy. Is is how are we going to effectively drill and test these wells going going forward in a coordinated campaign and and also having a test spread on standby. That you're kind of picking up and putting down and mobilizing people, then you go and drill another well, and then you activate it again, or whether you do it in a kind of coordinated all-in testing campaign where you're just going around at the end once you've drilled all your wells, and then you're going on a on a dedicated campaign. And there's no right or wrong answer; it's just a question of logistics and and, and cost and time. Going back to the um, the fluid samples. Is there an absolute minimum volume you need to recover to say we have a discovery? Like, is it one of these 450 cc chambers, or is it you mentioned yeah. two to three? No, so you just need one of them. So, okay, um, is that per zone, or can you just say this well as a discovery if you have one yeah, one filled you, chamber? You yeah, you, uh, if you've got one filled chamber and you've got um, you've proven that you can. Uh, have movable hydrocarbons out of the rocks by, by, and, and flow it by getting a, a sample. Yeah. And then you've got the same log responses at other zones, you know, which is what we have now. We've, we've got the log responses that demonstrate we've got um, hydrocarbon-bearing reservoir, but we just don't have a fluid sample to, to show for it. So you can then say, well, these other ones are, are also a discovery and we've got X zones that are Within this, within this closure and structure and and this, so you can do it um, from a from a uh, a reporting point of view. That's something that we'd be comfortable doing because I think we, you know, you don't have to go and get a, a sample out of every single zone to prove that you have hydrocarbons in every single zone. You need to show that you can get it out of one that's um, within the same greater structure, same formation, same stratigraphic interval i think moving to a different stratigraphic interval you you need to kind of prove that differently so say if we were in the dandy versus the the upper angua i think that would require probably two or a sample from each of them um and the minimum volume question i mean it's just a function of the size of the the sample chambers so that's um you know that's it'll be a, a minimum of 450 cc's you just fill them up and then that's it so uh, I imagine people are going to want to know quickly, you know, we often get questions about, is this a commercial well, you know, versus it being a commercial prospect, which is, which takes a number of wells plus yep. flow testing to show to, to, you know, move towards reserves. 
So realistically, you know, you can still declare a discovery, but it might be several months to years before you can book reserves, as it were. That's my understanding. Or do you that, think you can do it quicker? Your your reserve booking is a function of, and the size of it is the amount of information that you have and certainty that you can project away from your well control. So, for example, with with um, SEC rules in, in in the US, to uh, you're only allowed to book your reserves in a limited area around your well bore. You can't project away from your your well across the structure. Certainly not going into another fault block. Um, so, booking reserves comes at a time where you've where you're. It's mature enough from a data acquisition point of view to provide you with some certainty across a particular area. Of you can do it for a smaller area in the field, but you can't just go from one well and say, "Well, we've got you know ten TCF or twenty TCF across the field." It's not you can't do that because you don't have the data to prove the continuity of your reservoir, continuity of your of your fluids, and it's the same type of fluid from certainly not in a structure the size of a cube. So to get to a reserves point of view, you then also got to have typically um, commercial contracts in place. You've got to have certainty of development. You've got to have line of sight to your licenses being granted. So there's all of those considerations that come into a, a reserves booking. You can certainly do a resources booking, which is contingent resources, which means it's contingent on either some kind of commercial aspect, some technology aspect. Um, so it'll come in those phases where it'll go to contingent resources and then it'll go to reserves. I think the other important aspect from a commerciality declaration, most production sharing agreements, most um, concession agreements, there's a very important um, mechanism in there where once you declare it commercial, you're on the clock to develop it. So you'll often see companies that will provide you with every indication that it's commercial, but they'll stop short of declaring it a commercial discovery because then you've got to um, you've got to get on with your development plan and your your development plan or your development and your production window is depending on which you know which jurisdiction you're operating in is. 15, 20, 25 years, 30 years sometimes. So you don't want to eat up some of that by prematurely before you're ready to, to get the, the, the development kicked off by declaring it commercial and then you're eating into some of that window. So we'll probably have a similar situation because we've got a we've got a we've got a language trigger in our um, in our agreements as well. Okay. I think uh, Matthew has some key questions on resources. Yeah, thank you, Jamie. Just I'm going to back up this one moment here, and just a, a question that again I think is maybe just for posterity's sake for for people that you know, lots of people asked it, and I'm sure it's one that you've asked, you've been asked yourself a number of times. Um, I mean, I think that the, you you articulated your argument well, or your your reasoning well about why you know a, a deliberate sort of steadfast approach to flow testing makes more sense you know for a junior such as yourself and, and you know being being uh, wise with your resources and and such 
obviously I'm going to guess you've, you've met with some consternation from investors where, you know, people are hoping for a faster turnaround in terms of flow testing from, from the drill. Um, I guess maybe the question I have for you, are, are, are there legitimate concerns in there in terms of the turnaround or is that just what you would maybe suggest is this kind of impatient market, impatient market uh, followers, maybe just kind of wanting things fast. Look, it is, uh, I think the expectation of us, Drilling and testing immediately is is um, a bit much to ask for the state that we're in now. I think again, compared to a lot of where a lot of our investors have had experience, maybe in in other jurisdictions in Australia, in the US, in you know wherever else, this again one is we've only drilled one well in the basin. We've got a remote operation, a remote location. Um. We don't have any supply bases from a service company point of view where you can just call up and, and say, okay, we, you know, we want to drill and test and things are on standby. So all of those play a factor in, in, in the lead times and what we're, in what we're doing. So, you know, in the Perth basin, which is, you know, 400 Ks away from here, you've got a supply base up in Caratha. You've got some of the supply bases down here in Perth. All of the service companies are there. You've got two rigs in the basin. Um, if you need anything, you're not dealing with any customs importation, crossing borders, you've got personnel at your fingertips. This, this is a logistics project with some drilling in the middle of it. So the logistics aspect of this is enormous. Uh, the drilling's, you know, Ryan, um, our new drilling manager who's who's come on board. And again, we've had some some changes on the drilling team as well. You know, he's from a drilling point of view, you know, in his view, this it's the simplest part of what we're doing. We're not, we're not too concerned. It's the logistics aspect and the lead times, getting contracts in place with the with the vendors and service um service companies has taken a long time for this early part of where we are. But once I think once we can give everyone certainty that they need from a market point of view, from, from everywhere else, that we can then start planning much longer term, bigger campaigns, multi-well um, across uh, several years as well, you'll then start to see those service providers be able to set up and service us better from where they can supply tools. Because if you, you know, if you, look at the uh, at the logistics component okay we're getting sets of tools for this well but in between them how do you service them um, if you need to replace them where does that come from they don't have any supply bases everything's got to go back to angola or gabon or pemba and mozambique or the uae gulf of mexico you know it's 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 really hard to get every and if you're missing one of those things it holds up your entire camp holds up your entire operation because you can't, you know, it's a very integrated operation. You can't just pick and choose. So the, the logistics aspect is, is really hard. So as I said, once we get, once we get past this next world, everything going well, we'll be able to then plan uh, a lot better and we can get better contracts in place with our service providers as well. You know, Invictus doesn't have a, have a, a real track record. Um, Zimbabwe doesn't have a track record from a from a jurisdiction point of view. So a lot of a lot of these service companies 
it's taken a lot to get them over the line to do it, but they can see now longer term work on the horizon. So this time around, it's been much easier as well. And it'll get easier and it'll get easier as everyone gets more familiar with it. So um, we've also got some seasonal considerations as well. So, you know, we don't want to, to start getting a, a little bit too clever at this point uh, and, and getting ourselves stuck. This pad though is all weather. The road is all weather. So when when we built McCree One, we were supposed to spud in May or June. You know, we should have been done well before the rainy season kicked in. And it just didn't happen. And we didn't design the, the runoff to do it was a completely flat pad. Um, and the the we didn't have as much gravel uh, in the pad construction. Whereas now McCree two, again, we've we've refined it, gotten better. And um, so, you know, so future drilling pads as well are, are going to be better and, and better access as well. So that'll also help us keep everything busy for more of the year than, than necessary we would. No, thank you. Uh, and yeah, I think that that just provides some color for people that are just obviously anxious and excited, right? Um, I, I'm going to switch gears here. And again, we're kind of now here we are, you know, post Makuyu 2. Um, I guess, but maybe this one actually kind of straddles the, the pre and post Makuyu 2. Um, re updated resource estimates. Is this a matter? I mean, do you plan to provide an updated perspective recoverable resource estimate for the basin prospects based on incoming data uh, prior to the next well? Is that something that is, is, is your intention or, or what's your thoughts around the next resource estimate? So, so from a, uh, are you talking about the basin margin prospect or are you talking about just the basin in general? Uh, well, I guess both, right? But yeah, I mean, we can get granular or, or macro. Yeah, right. But, okay. So, so, so from a, Sorry, there was some of the prospects in the east of the basin uh, had some new seismic shot over them. So like uh, Mopane, Mazuma, yep. et cetera. And some of those don't have volumes associated with them that I've yep. seen. So we've, yeah, so we've just, we've just finished that acquisition. So that data is now getting processed and then we've got to interpret it. And then we will we'll provide some numbers once once we've you know, then map the prospects. We've we've done the the estimates, and and we'll you know again we'll we'll go through that that process again of, of putting out putting out numbers. So that's that's probably something that'll only happen at some stage next year once we've once we've done that. The seismic processing will probably take until I would guess end of November at this point of view, based on um, based on the, what happened last time and and the amount of data that we have. And then we've got to interpret it and, and, and do all of the rest and integrate the data then from Makuyu 1 and Makuyu 2 into those. So from uh, stepping back then to, to Makuyu 1 and, and that prospective resource estimate and the basin margin ones, the way that we went about those estimates and the independent numbers was, was really then rather than try and pick um, an individual section within the seismic and say, well, that's where our reservoir is and that and and what it's going to be. We we took a very, very simple approach where we said for the let's use the upper angra as an example, where we said based on the outcrop, we've seen 25 to 50 meter, sometimes 100 meter thick reservoir sections. Our our estimate is going to be using the reservoir properties um, 
of this range. So again, we, we, we did a probabilistic range. We, we just gave it a net, a net reservoir interval of 25 meters in the, in the upper angler, right? And you project that across. So we've got a more complicated, obviously, scenario now with the number of reservoirs we have, the different depths that they're at, the type of depositional environment that we're in being fluvial. So you, you then, now to project where we are from a QU1 across the entire structure and say, okay, well, that's, we know in a fluvial environment, some of those reservoirs are going to come and go. Um, you're going to get some that end up being stacked, whether you encounter the same stack channel on the other side of the structure, probably unlikely. So it becomes very difficult to project what you saw from a QU1 across the entire structure because it's not, you know, from a depositional point of view, that that's not valid. So once we drill a few wells then, uh, and some 3D seismic, that will certainly help us as well. We're, we're just dealing with, you know, it's still a relatively coarse grid from a 2D perspective, but more well control um, and 3D will then be able to put together contingent resources and then an updated perspective resource estimate as well for the, the stuff that we, the blocks that we haven't drilled in the structure. And, you know, you'll see this across, uh, across other companies. Some of them have, will have a, a 2P, a 2C and a 2U estimate in the same structure. So it, it's a, it's a um, so that's reserves, resources, uh, continued resources and prospective resources. The stuff that's in the structure undiscovered, you can't lay claim to it because you don't have a, you don't have well control in that, in that block or whatever the case is. So that's, that's ultimately where we get to. And, and again, projecting average reservoir properties across across the the basin and the structure that's also you know a little a little bit immature at this stage um you know from a getting back to my favorite the perth basin um you know typically you haven't seen companies update their resources estimates until they've drilled you know two or three wells at least yeah, good. And I, and I think that you, yeah, you're providing that context that people are looking for. If if I could be so bold and to follow this up now that you've you've you know it's immature and then, you know data lacking to make these sort of decisions, but if I could put you on the hot spot, then obviously if it's too early or there's not enough data, then you can say so. But are we moving closer? Do you think it, it just based on your preliminary understanding? Are we you know P, moving closer to P10, P90, or are we around that P50 zone in terms of what the pre-drill uh, resource estimate was? Yeah, it's a it's a tough question, Matt, and and it's really around the the column heights that we that we're looking at now. Because if we we don't know how we, where we are in terms of free water levels for for these structures, we didn't get we couldn't get because of the um, uh, the issues that we had getting pressure data because of the um, Oh, my, my mind's just gone. Uh, the um, uh, the filter cake that we had on the on the inside of the borehole, so we we couldn't get um, we couldn't get pressure gradients through that, which would have helped us, uh, you know, get a rough idea of what what the the column heights could have been, and that's going to be a major um, variable in in the the estimates of your of your resource. If you know, if we're kind of filter spill in the in the columns, and we've got a series of stack um, stacked reservoirs, even if they're individual, that starts to become you know 
pretty material. Um, if they're much smaller individual compartments, then they're obviously going to be at the lower end of the spectrum. So we can't we can't tell until we start to get pressure data across there. And um, so yeah, I think you know it's just we don't have the maturity at this point to to say where we are from a, a range. Are we tending towards the P90 or the P50 or the P10? It's, yeah, absolutely valid. Right? I think everyone, understandably, everyone is is excited and just just eager to, to to see this this kind of long-standing years of work come to fruition, just as you are, right? So, um, maybe I'll switch gears here. We're kind of nearing the end of it here, a bit of a grab at the end here. Um, just discussing farm energy EVs, right? I mean, this is of course a much bandied about conversation as well. Um, I guess maybe a couple of questions just around. Uh, the variables involved, I suppose, in the process. I mean, uh, one of my questions was like, what's the ideal moment? I mean, I think that's kind of a, a silly question, maybe. But maybe, maybe uh, more to the point, maybe I'll ask this instead. How much does a sample to surface actually change things for for potential partners? Right? I mean, that you know, the market didn't give you much credit because you couldn't get the fooled sample to surface. But you know you've articulated yourself well that there's been a, it's been a tremendous technical success. I mean, are 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 our prospective partners waiting on? Maybe the question I'm actually asking you is 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 how much data is left to get filled in for you to start getting serious offers that you consider to be fair value? Maybe that's the question I'm actually trying to ask you here. Yeah, the fair the I think from a is uh, a serious the serious offer and fair value um, things are kind of related um, because you might have some something that is a uh, an offer from a, a recognized partner but maybe you don't think as a company reflects fair value so do you regard it as a serious offer or just tire kicking so they're kind of related but I think demonstrating movable hydrocarbons obviously and, and and a discovery that that does then open up i think particularly with the the materiality of our portfolio controlling the running room in the base and that's something that is then attractive to to all companies because it you know it's got that repeatability in running room as we you know we, we have highlighted in our presentations in the locker jar base and using that as an example once you prove it you know it's it's as close to shooting fish in a barrel as you can get from a from an oil and gas perspective so that means you're um converting your prospective resources then into contender resources and reserves becomes a lot higher you're not having to risk it as hard as you were and and the, obviously the value then goes through the roof so that will definitely change i think you know we've already had conversations with with a number of parties and there were some who were keen on potentially joining us in 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 this uh, next round of uh, in this coming campaign but we felt that we could really deliver a step change in in the value of the company and the and the asset by competing with Kuyu 2 and 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 being able to prove that movable hydrocarbons uh, are present in the in Makuyu, and then obviously you infer that uh, uh, across a large part of the basin as well. Now that we've proven that it works, so that from a from a timing point of view, sometimes you can't control the, the timing. 
you know, companies sometimes are, are on the lookout and they they see something that suits what they like and then, you know, become become something that it can happen pretty quickly or you can run a process and uh, and, and and do it in a more kind of methodical way once you put together all the data and, and, and everything else. And if you run an open process, that can also then drive some competition and deliver more value uh, in, in, in that manner. So at some stage, we are going to bring a partner and we can't continue to, to fund all of this activity all ourselves. The timing of when you bring a partner in and the value that you realize, again, is, is dependent on what the the maturity of it is, so how much data you have, um, which then generally goes to the risk perception that you have. So if it's earlier stage, the companies that are farming in will risk it harder than if you've drilled, you know, five wells and flow tested them and and everything looks great. So it's, it, but then you've got to spend more money to do that as a, you know, as a, as the operator and the, and the, um, so it is a balancing act of when you know when you do it. So the later you do it and providing things turn out as you anticipate, obviously you can drive drive the value higher, but that's then balanced against how do you fund all of that activity as well. So do you have it's a never, never, never gonna be perfect. Do you have a structured kind of formal JV process underway or is it more? You know, you're focusing, no, we're like, focusing on exploration right now. Yeah, we're, 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 fo we're focused on on the campaign. And uh, I think, you know, we and we discussed this at, at the board level is do, you know, do we, we, we'd had some inquiries, do we open this up to a process again? And I think the, you know, unanimous in that what we needed to do was, was go and drill McQ2 and to keep the team focused on the operations and the and the campaign. And because it, it, it is a big effort to, to, you know, Jamie, I'm sure you've been involved in, in these processes as well. It's a big effort to get everything ready. And we were still digesting data from a Q1 as well. And that, you know, that's a live and evolving story as well when you're doing it. So it was a lot of work to get everything ready for a Q1. And if you're running a process at the same time, you know, it would have distracted everyone. So we've put it on hold until, until post Q2. I think you're here. Oh, thank you, Jimmy. Yeah, I think you're you're kind of anticipating questions here. I, I can't help but ask as a follow-up. I mean, you again, you've you've explained yourself well, but data is king, obviously, right? And then I think that that dovetails nicely to the conversation as to why Makuyu 2 is where it is, right? You're trying to gain Bayesian mastery as quickly as possible, as you yourself as referenced. Uh, and this is going to be a, an impossible question where I'm going to ask you to predict where other people might be, their heads might be at. So, I mean, just, you know, bear with me or, or play along. But, I mean, where are we at, right? I mean, w when do you think that the the data mastery of the Bayesian becomes serious enough that you, again, you know, predicting other people's mo movements here, so this is all hypothetical, but, like, you know, is it is another well, is it another two wells? You know, 2D, you have to get a more finer grid with your 2D, start getting 3D in there. I mean, at what point do, do you achieve critical mass, I suppose, in, in your perspective, I guess? Uh, look, I think certainly 3D is a part of that. Um, you know, uh, and as I mentioned in, in um, last year pre-drill, that we were chasing big material structures. We didn't need 3D 
to image them and, and prove whether there were hydrocarbons there and structure there. We're testing stuff where it's big enough that it, it it's it's material, and if you can't image it on 2D, you shouldn't be chasing it at that point, right? That then changes. So it's a crude tool, but it's good enough to be doing what we what we need to do now. Into the future, then, when you're planning your development wells, trying to understand your reservoir connectivity, because we've got multiple horizons, that that then becomes important. Um, so with that and and being able to then calibrate your wells to your seismic data, that you know, 3D is 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 crucial uh, because you've just got a much much better handle on the on the continuity of it and, and the connectivity of it. So I think post 3D and 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 post another one or two wells, you you can start to then have a bit of of confidence away from your your well control. Um, having said that. You know, in the subsurface and in this game, you always get surprises. Sometimes they're good and sometimes they're bad. And, you know, it, you're never going to have perfect data. You're never going to have basin mastery. That's a that's a fact. You're never going to understand fully what happens. And, you know, even on your reserves estimates, that's why you have P90, P10 and, and P50 estimates, because you just cannot predict it with any certainty. And sometimes those are really wide ranges. And, and but the more data you have, the narrower those ranges should get. But that data costs money to go and to go and acquire. So it's, but it's you're never going to have basin mastery. You may think you do, but it'll come and bite you at some stage. And you know, even in Whitesea, the field that I used to work in, Whitesea ten that they drilled, dry hole within that within that field. So that was after, you know, and that and that was for a particular reason. Um, where it was, it was up close against the faults and there was always that risk. But you never, you know, even, even after all of that, you're going to have some surprises and you're never going to master it. Uh, Carnarvon with Buffalo, redevelopment, attic oil, drilled, drilled it in, you know, really well defined, but still. So you do need all of those tools, well control, 3D, and um, even then it's still a tough game. So I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, just a, it's just a fact. Yeah, I um, think that's about as well as I can probably have hoped for. No, it was a, a difficult question, absolutely. Um, and, and I guess maybe I'll, I'll, I'll switch gears here. Like I say, we're down to the nitty gritty here, three or four more subtopics. Um, well, kind of greatest hits here again. PPSA, obviously a longstanding conversation here. You know, yeah. yeah, Scott, you and I had a decent conversation about it last week on the phone when we were planning this conversation. Um, I just thought, again, I think that you know, a lot of energy is spent on retail boards concerned about PPSA and, 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 and the lack of the, of it being finalized and done and, and officially and officially made official, I suppose. Um, I guess, do you just want to take that? I mean, again, I know this is something that you've probably talked about uh, many, many, many times, but I mean... What? How real is this concern? Should people be be wasting or using as much energy as they do want it? Uh, and I guess maybe what are the pre-existing terms about the PPSA? If you move forward without it, what are the terms that that you are operating under? So yeah, I think th there's uh, there's a lot of concern that comes from a lot of shareholders on the on the PPSA, and it's because it's something that we flagged that that, that is important, and it is in the in 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 the long run. 
but I think there is a lot of emphasis and energy wasted on, on, on it being in place at the moment. So we operate under a concession arrangement, which is a royalty tax agreement, which is, and we can operate all the way through to production under that current system. We don't have to have a PPSA in place. It's something that we voluntarily put in place with the government so that they can take a share of not only the profit, but also the product, which is, which is important um, in the scheme of things because of what's happened in some of the other mineral sectors in, in Zim. Um, that's gonna, it will happen. And that's the way that the only way also that the government can back into this and get their equity share in the project and gain anything besides royalty and tax. At the moment, it's the best fiscal regime on the planet. 2% royalty on gas, zero on oil and corporate tax. So if it's not in place, we actually gain. But this is the right thing to do and it's gonna happen eventually. Yeah, and so maybe, I mean, again, I, I just asking you to theorize about the, the machinations of other people and other organizations, but I mean, what is the holdup? I mean, now we're, we're butting up a week away from another uh, election, and I'll ask you about that here in a moment too. But I mean, is it just, uh, I guess, what's, can you provide any color whatsoever in terms of why the can's getting kicked seems to be, is it getting kicked in your, is that a fair assessment? I mean, people maybe are concerned, of course, jurisdiction is a, is a concern. I mean, there's lots of reasonable explanations as to why Zimbabwe as a jurisdiction is maybe worth people's time and money, right, in terms of risk assessment. But I mean, is it fair to say it's being, people are concerned it's becoming a political issue, right? And so, you know, and I think that's understandable. Can you just, again, just shedding color or shed some light on that conversation, right, around is it a political football? Has a canyon get ki been kicked? And, uh, you know, those concerns regarding this political football that would maybe people are concerned about. Sure. I don't, I don't think it's a political football that's been, that's been kicked around. Um, everyone wants this in place. Um, you know, certainly with the government it's wanted. Uh, and from some of the, some of the, some of the NGO groups with, within the region uh, and in Zimbabwe, also want it in place because at the end of the day, it's about transparency um, and accountability from a um, both from an investor point of view, which is us, and also from a government point of view to to its citizens. Because everyone wants to see that when the resource is developed, that those benefits that that it benefits the nation and not just um, invectors or or a handful of people in government. So. We all want the same thing, uh, and and I had to point this out to to a couple of NGO groups that were, um, you know, have postulated that it would end up in the same manner that we've seen the the diamond trade end up in 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 Zimbabwe at one point, where you know only a, only a handful of people benefit. Oil and gas is very different because you've got the the transportability issue with it. Um, you know, diamonds are very small, highly portable. Oil and gas is not. And we are a public company. We're very trans well, completely transparent and open. I think we put out far more information um, than most companies do from, from all aspects, whether it's technical, whether it's um, 
operational, we, we put out a lot of information. Some of the other, I guess, aspects of that are there are a lot of, um, and I don't want to point out nationalities of, of any, but there, uh, of any particular groups, but there are a lot of uh, government controlled companies that operate in the region that don't have any of that transparency or accountability. So with a, with a resource like this and that, that is being operated by a company like Invictus, there is a, a far more accountability, transparency that, that is typically present in, in these ventures. And so I think that's also what has, has become apparent is that everyone's a lot more comfortable now with Invictus in, in this position. We used to get a lot of flack about, you know, you guys are a small company, what are you going to do? You know, how are you going to develop this? And we've proven everyone wrong. You know, a lot of us, a lot of, if I'd been, if I'd stopped when people started telling me to stop doing this and almost immediately, like 12 years ago, when, <laughs> um, when this first happened, and even more recently, you know, everyone told us we couldn't drill any wells, we'd never be able to do this. You're wasting your time. There's no oil and gas in this space. And we've proven everyone wrong. And, um, you know, and I think we we are being, we're being taken seriously now in all quarters where whether it's government, whether it's opposition, NGOs, I think, you know, we've, we've, we've proven ourselves and our capability. And we've sidetracked a little bit here, but the, the reason that this has taken um, longer than probably people would like, and certainly that, that, than we would have liked, is that there's been a, there's been a couple of evolutions of this. It's been through two independent reviews. Um, the Sovereign Wealth Fund then got involved last year when, when we did this, this deal for the additional acreage to cover the basin margin and some of that stuff in the east. Uh, they had someone that was appointed this year and we were, we were confident of it, of it getting done. And that um, about two months ago, that has that's not changed where there's a new... We've been told who it is, and we be a very well-known um, individual once they're in the chair from the Sovereign Wealth Fund because they are a signatory to this agreement. Until that point, uh, the 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 chair and the CEO role at the Sovereign Wealth Fund have now been vacated, and that will only now be fulfilled post-election once it once the once everything is completed. So once that's done, they've then gone through the independent well the the they're comfortable with the reviews and the comments. The, the fiscal terms are all, are all agreed and, and, and everyone's happy. It's just some, some few little uh, nitty gritty bits and pieces from a lawyer, you know, typical lawyer um, stuff, arguing about vocabulary and, um, you know, definitions in, in some of the agreements. And so there's, there's nothing material that, that um, is going to get changed. It's really just, the new bodies in the sovereign wealth fund being comfortable with the agreement and being a party to it because no one wants to sign an agreement that they don't understand or be comfortable with. I think that's also been a fear that's that is not unreasonable on government's part is that no one in government really has understood what a production sharing agreement is, what's supposed to be in it, is it fair and balanced, and that's why it's had all of these independent reviews done so that at least because this is backed by statute, it's backed by 
um, by the laws of the country that once it's done, then that's it. There's no there's no turning back. So they wanted to be sure that this this agreement is um, is fair for the government and for the people, and that there's nothing untoward in it, and that they're not signing something that is going to um, deprive the nation of or, or be an unfair agreement uh, in the future because it will it will last you know many many years. So this is something that's going to be in place for 25 to you know, 30, 40, 50 years that we'll operate under. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any concerns about, uh, one moment here, just the, is there, are there any risks involved where you announce a discovery without a PPSA in place? Is there any, does that add any complicating factors that you know, as you progress things towards commerciality, is there a potential for complications that arise or no? No. We don't believe so. Um, there are coal bed methane projects um, that are in production in Zimbabwe that operate under the current framework that we have, and those provisions are in the law for us to do so. So we can go and apply for a production license, we pay a royalty, and we pay tax, mm -hmm. and that's it. So everything is there for us to go through that. Um, so, so you have nothing, nothing would add to that risk of us making a discovery. Uh, in fact, I think it will speed things along, to be honest, because, uh, you know, the only the only means then of government getting its equity share under the agreement that we have with the Sovereign Wealth Fund and, and how we've negotiated this is for the production sharing agreement to get signed. So at, at the moment, there is, when we first drafted the agreement, there was no government participation at all. It was just a pure... Um, production sharing agreement where there was no government equity. Now, because of the deal that we did with the Sovereign Wealth Fund to expand that license area so that we had that basin master position, that's been now brought into the new agreement too. So effectively, that's the only way that that, that they get um, equity and get any of the, the, the production sharing benefits either. Otherwise, just a, a very low royalty and corporate tax. Okay, good. No, thank you. And then this will be kind of one foot in the PSA conversation and one foot moving towards the elections here. Uh, but I mean, again, just obviously political risk. I mean, this is, you know, like you say, you've been on this for 12 years. You understand why people have some reservations regarding Zimbabwe as a jurisdiction in terms of uh, investing there based on history. Uh, obviously, from the Western perspective, you have the liberal Tory divide where, you know, if you are a resource investor, you're obviously kind of rooting for the Tories because they typically traditionally more more uh, favorable or friendly to, to that sort of resource uh, industries. Um, and so obviously I understand that that's not necessarily the case in all, you know, other countries, politics are much more uh, complex or unique to the local kind of needs. Is there a similar divide? I mean, Munanagagwa doesn't get reelected, ZANU don't get reelected. You know, obviously this is... Uh, it hasn't happened yet, but I mean, do, how much of a spanner does that throw in the works for you? I mean, does the opposition party oppose to uh, this sort of work or where, where are they at ideologically? I mean, what are the concerns here? We're just a week away. So, so from a, you know, and, and, and all, all companies in the sector, um, you know, deal with this in, in, in every jurisdiction that you operate in, you know, whether it's Australia, whether it's the U S um, UK, 
these are long-term projects and you've got to be able to, to do business with the government of the day and governments change. And it's, you know, given the, given the scale of this and, and the longevity that it'll have, it's highly likely that we will deal with a change of government at some stage. I, I think it's pretty pretty rare for one political party to be, you know, that, that would be then by by the end, you know, you're coming up to something like 75 years probably, which is which is pretty rare. Certainly the party would have changed anyway by then and, and compared to the original founders of it. So you've got to be able to do, do business with, with the government of the day, um, whether that's the opposition currently or, or, or a new opposition party in the future, it doesn't matter. I think um, we don't get involved in politics um, over there because, as I said, we need to be able to, we're not picking sides, we need to be able to do to, to do business with, with any government that's in power. Um, but, you know, previously we've had conversations with, um, with um, who are in the current opposition party. This was back in, in 2018 where, where, where it was, uh, the first election um, happened after the change in government. And they are, you know, they're, they're pro, they are pro-resource as well. I think everyone now recognises that this is a project that will have a material impact on the shape of the economy and every government is, one again, is going to want to utilise it. Um, and ensure that it's not stymied, it's not held up, so that because it is a real silver bullet for the economy, um, particularly from a from an energy perspective, and power is the is an acute deficit not only in Zimbabwe but in the rest of the region as well, and it's really hampering the economy. Uh, and and so we don't have any concerns if there is a change in government that that it's going to come with any threat to our to our project. No, or operations. No, thank you. And then two more. Uh, we'll touch on helium and then just a development and work program conversation. And that'll be it. Almost at the two-hour mark here, so I'll try to be, be quick here. Uh, helium. Uh, yep. Obviously, it was kind of a funny little update when it happened, right? A, kind of an added wrinkle or a little bonus. Um, just so a kind of a general conversation, just an update on a color you can provide, when we might know more, things you've learned from the lab or things that you've learned since drilling. Um, and I'll pause there, and then I'll ask my second question afterwards. But uh, any any update there? Yeah. So look, the the, the helium angle. Uh, to be honest, we weren't surprised with uh, because the the basin has the the geological ingredients to you know to generate helium. Um, what what was a an unknown was what kind of quantities and 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 concentrations it would be in. So pre drill. We actually did quite a lot of investigation into, you know, how do we sample for it? What do we need to do? And we came to the conclusion that, you know, we kind of needed to focus on the hydrocarbon aspect uh, first. And, you know, if helium's there, then it's a one, we don't know if it is going to be in, in commercial concentration. So we're not going to kind of worry ourselves with it at the moment because you helium is one of the smallest particles around and it and it does escape uh, and so to sample it we would have had to get um some copper tubes to to store it in because it uh, the it can escape because of the pore sizes and glass it can actually escape out of glass so we just decided it was too hard for what we were doing um with with makuyu one 
So then when the when we got the mud gas samples, um, and one of my dealers, oh, why are you so obsessed with helium? And so oh, well, it's a nice, you know, it's a nice little, nice little bonus. And you do get in in you know, 97% of the world's hard, uh, helium production comes out of hydrocarbon hosted heliums as a byproduct because, uh, and you will find helium in most oil and gas fields. It's just a question of the concentration, but in most of them, it doesn't exist in concentrations that warrant um, processing it to put the energy in to separate it out because it's just the juice is not worth the squeeze, basically. Um, and often companies don't even test for it as well. That's quite often too, where you're not looking for helium and you've got to specifically request it from the lab to, you know, to make sure that they're looking at it with the, um, with the chromatography. So we did, um, you know, one of my jurors was saying, well, you know, why are we doing this? And when we sent the mud gas away, it's like, oh, well, we've had, you know, these are in isotubes. Are we going to have it? It's probably escaped. You know, we didn't even know if we were going to get anything out of the isotubes because we had such an issue with the, the mud logging unit and that sampling system. We didn't know if we were even going to get valid results out of it. So that was a, a pleasant surprise um, to have it in the concentrations that, that we have it. So, you know, um, it, is, it is something now that we will... We're not focused on it, but it is a really nice byproduct. It's really, really valuable. And it's at concentrations that make sense to, you know, to process it once we're once you're um, producing gas. But fortunately, we're, we're, what we're looking at now is because it is hydrocarbon hosted, you've got enough energy in the processing of your of your um, of your gas to warrant extracting it. If you look at a pure play helium expiration where it's hosted by carbon dioxide or nitrogen as your carrier gas, that then requires diesel or something else as an energy source to, to burn. And it also doesn't accumulate in, um, if, if you think about hydrocarbon source rocks generating and, and, and migrating um, and you get, and you start to charge and um, charge your reservoirs and displace your your um, your water leg, you can't generate helium in enough quantities to 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 have big pools of it and big accumulations of it. So that's why hydrocarbon hosted helium is is ninety seven percent of the world's production because it, it comes as a byproduct, not as a primary thing that you're chasing. Mm -hmm. Well, good. No, and I think you kind of answered my follow up question. I mean, I, I get the sense that helium is is extremely challenging and opaque. You know, not just to, to to produce and to sell, right? That the market is a challenging thing, and so I, I sometimes find that this is just me editorializing. That uh, explore codes that are struggling with uh, finding hydrocarbons will start to bandy about and then champion their helium, right? So to me, it becomes a bit of a distraction. Where that you know, the, 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 if you've drilled a duster, you can start saying you're exploring helium. So I guess uh, maybe not so much a question here as just a comment. It's uh, you know, you say that after the gas has been developed after your primary targets have, have kind of been commercialized in a hypothetical world, you then turn around and start looking at the, you know, because I mean, all the massive amounts of infrastructure required for helium. So no, I guess that's just, yeah, I was going to ask you about, do you think it's a distraction? I guess uh, it was the question I was going to ask you a distraction, but it sounds like you've already fairly definitively answered no, if that's a... It's, it's, not, it's not a distraction because uh, it, it comes as a byproduct. So 
you know, as long as we're as long as we're producing gas, new helium will come along with it, and mm. um, you can separate it out. You can liquefy it. The, the you know, for, to, to to bolt on something like that is very very cheap from a from a helium point of view, and you can put it in ice containers and send it away. You'll always find a market for it. Mm. So, uh, so yeah, I did. I've had a lot of questions about it and say, why don't we focus more on it? Well, as long as we're focused on the on the hydrocarbons aspect, the helium comes for free. So yeah, perfect. Well said. No, good enough. And and so last question here. Uh, and then again, thank you here. We're just just nicely tapping past the deadline here. Uh just future development plans, future work programs moving forward. I guess maybe the question I'll start off with here just to, to end this final subtopic is. Right, that you know, we're seeing one well drilled a year, which I think people understand for a small explorer kind of part and parcel. But I also think you understand that that's probably not going to be sufficient to develop this in a in a ma manner that you know makes people money in a timely fashion, right? So I guess you know, when do you like when do when might me see that acceleration to a more meaningful scale? And I guess what will that take? Is that is is the is it just as simple as JV, or or what will it take to actually see the the drill programs and development programs uh, escalate uh, to create value in a in a more rapid fashion? I guess. Cool. So all going well with with Makuyu too, and assuming success, you know the acceleration will come pretty quickly. So the planning will start. Uh, immediately, and that will be in place for next year, where we can start to ramp up activity and put together multi-well campaigns. At the moment, you know, we would like to put, and we've got the the inventory from a from a um, location point of view, exploration targets point of view. We could go out and drill. We could put together more programs. A question of funding, really. So, and we, you know, we thought that. Proving up Makuyu 2 would then lead, lead to a re-rate in value, which would increase our ability to fund it and attract uh, a, a better deal from a farming point of view from, from partners. So the, the activity point of view and timing aspect of it is, is will we'll ramp up next year and and you know the, it's it's a function of of funding for us. I think we've proved the ability to move very quickly. Um, we acquired this license in 2018. We reprocessed the data, interrupted by COVID, shot in full seismic. We were still interpreting it when we committed to drilling a well, and then. You know, we drilled a we drilled a well inside of four years from that acquisition, and and had at least eighteen months interrupted by COVID from a basin that's never been drilled before, a country that's never been done it before. That is very very quick. So I think that you know we prove we can move fast, and we we probably move faster than a lot of potential partners would be comfortable with as well. A lot of people, particularly in bigger companies, love data. Obviously, you love data, but you've got to go and acquire it. It takes time. And the, the risk-based decision-making is easy to, you know, to, to say, oh, well, we need some more data before we go and drill, drill any wells. A lot of, you know, we're not of that view. I think we take, we take risk-based decisions of, of where we're going to drill and how we're going to do it and 
as I said, if, you know, if I'd listened to everyone who told me to stop, <laughs> we would have never have even got the license. So, you know, you got to you got to be persistent. You've got to believe in what you're doing and, and chase time and be dogged and in doing it. Um, provided we get the support for funding um, in the form of market support, and you know, I, I think that's one thing I've, I have neglected to to mention at the start of this podcast is we've been hugely fortunate with our shareholder base that we've had the support to go and do this and not many companies get that. And, you know, I'm very, very conscious of that and extremely grateful because, you know, what we're doing is hard what, and it's hard enough just from an operational perspective, but the market's also been, been fairly tough, particularly over the last year, but we've had the support from shareholders who, you know, also believe in this project and believe in what we're doing and have supported us. And that, you know, that is, that is amazing. And I'm, you know, very, very grateful. And it's, it's, it still blows me away. Um, so I think getting past McCue to delivering what, you know, what, what we hope, I think that the doors will, will open for us. And there's a lot of people watching this. Um, and we'll be able to go and I think get different sources of funding as well. That, that, that door will also open from us where it's not a, a pure, uh, you know, equity scenario um from some of the funds and 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 retail uh, we'll have a lot of funding options i think that 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 will open for us in in a number of different different avenues and partnering as well so we'll be able to then put together multi-world campaigns testing 3d um upsized data acquisition whole core um you know and that and that will that will come around quicker than people think. I mean, uh, we the the one well a year thing has been uh, just a function of, of the remote location and having to uh, eat an elephant one piece at a time. You know, it's you, you can't you can't swallow the whole thing at once. Um, and this is a this is something that's that is um, we've had to take a. Uh, I guess a pragmatic approach to uh, because our funding isn't unlimited. And so we've got to make, make sure that we're making the right decisions and at the right time. And, but that'll change. I think once, once we deliver what, what, what people are looking for. Glory be the day where finances don't decide to your exploration strategy. Eh? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. What a luxury. <laughs> so maybe one more here and I apologize. There's a couple of questions I'm not going to get to, but I'll, I'll end on this one. Maybe. Um, and just uh, if you had to pick right now, just to tie up this idea of, of future work programs, based on your knowledge right now, based on the data you have in, you know, in your possession right now, where would you be heading next for the next for, for the number three? It's a very good question and something that we're kind of wrestling with at the moment as well, uh, because and it's a luxury of having, I guess, a lot of a lot of optionality in the in the portfolio. So, I mean, we haven't even talked about the base and margin yet, and that's still something that's sitting and hasn't been tested um the stuff in the east that we that we're maturing now with the seismic we'll get a we'll get a good look at that once the once the data is being processed and how that shapes up we see some very interesting uh amplitude supported leads um from the old data from the mobile data um, which we're quite excited about so um whether you now then kind of move to extend makuyu as a play the east whether you go and test a new play in um 
in the basin margin that, that, that hasn't been done, which has a lot of running room in itself. Um, and some appraisal with, with Makuyu, with, you know, we're working through that at the moment. So I think regardless of what happens with, with, with Makuyu too, we've still got a lot of, um, a lot of running room in the rest of the, the basin to go and chase as well. So I, th I think um, that's, that's also important to, um, to articulate as well that the, the, the basin works from a hydrocarbon perspective. There are hydrocarbons in the basin. Um, not everything that you drill is going to work. Uh, your chance of success goes up. Um, and once you've proven, you know, as we demonstrated in our, in our, um, in our presentation that was released, you know, one, one, once it works, it's then down to an individual prospect level. It's, it's still early. Um, but I think we've had a fantastic start and the running room now in the basin is, is, is there to be chased. And so, what you're going to see with a multi-well campaign is probably a combination where we will probably go and extend the play and try and drill some of the stuff in the east along we'll we'll probably go and shoot some 3d next year well more than likely uh we'll shoot 3d next year in in uh in Makuyu or over Makuyu, and then whether we wait until that's done before we select a, a Makuyu drilling location, we're having that debate as well internally. Um, so that leaves you then with the, because we've got a rig there, um, you know, the ability to go and test one of the basin margin prospects. So we're also going to do a, you know, a review of that now that we've uh, got more information on post Makuyu too again, able to better calibrate that. So we're updating our basin modeling at the moment as well. Um, we're getting some uh, some good indications in the, in the base margin and the dandy as well. There's some, there's some information that's that, that we're just working through at the moment that's come in, which is really interesting. And again, we, in the basin, sorry, in the, in Makui one, with the mud logging um, challenges that we had where we didn't get any any mud gas data through, you know, basically until the upper angua in both the, the main bore and the side track. That left us with a lot of uncertainty in the in the upper reservoir because you'd like, you know, that gives you indications of whether you've had migration through um, in, in the upper upper level. So we've done some analysis of some of the cuttings um, in, in some of those upper reservoirs and, and we're just working through that now. And that I think also is is going to be um, pointing us to go and, go and chase the space and margin play as well. So we're always concerned about source and charge in the, in the upper stuff and, and in the base and margin, given, given the fetch area of Makuyu and what that means. And, and this has added, added a little bit, bit more back in, into our, our belief in that and, and, and chasing that further and that it is going to become a, a really material play in its own right. So... Mm. Yeah, long-winded way of saying we still haven't decided, um, but I think you're going to see a combination of of um, of all of those things, um, which, which is great. It means we've got you know a lot to choose from, and we're not we're not we're not drilling wells because we don't have an option of where you know where to go, um, where you're pigeonholed into. You know, if you've only got a couple of prospects in your portfolio, sometimes you're drilling them just for the sake of it to fill some activity. And you never want to get into a scenario where you're just 
drilling wells to fill rig slots because you've made made commitments. We, you know, we've we can go test stuff that's new and stuff that will open up further running room, and and that that's great to have. So. No, great. Thank you, Scott. Uh, and honestly, I think we're 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 at the end here. Jamie, do you have anything you want to ask Scott before we tie things up? No, just thanks again for your time. It's great chatting to you again. Yeah, no, and absolutely. And Scott, I'll turn it to you. Last last chance to final words. Yeah, I think um, you know, again, just just to reiterate, thanks to thanks to everyone who's who's um been with us in the in the journey we've had some some long-standing shareholders and, and some some more recent ones who've you know become aware of this and, and are excited by the opportunity i think invictus and our portfolio is relatively unique in the in the junior space it's, it's not often that you have a company that has this sort of materiality in their portfolio um the running room that we have and the results that we've had from our very first well uh, in the campaign and now leading into into the next one and, and being able to to get that support from our shells to continue this so that we haven't had to pause and stop and kind of fight to bring in a JV partner and 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 hold up activity for that. Having been able to fund this um you know ourselves via our shareholders has been amazing to do uh because it's meant we've been able to to chase this um and and get it done much quicker than we ordinarily would have with a with a JV partner. Um, excited for this next well. Uh, obviously, it's um, and again feeling feeling a lot more comfortable leading into this one for a number of reasons. We've battle hardened from the from the previous one. We've made the right changes to the to the team, to the well design, to the program, and so it's you know it's now in um, it's coming around the corner. You know we're going to be we're going to be drilling and about a month's time so it's uh, it's come around again fairly quickly and, and looking forward to an exciting campaign and then building building from there so the work won't be done first um you know post makuyu 2 it's really just starting so um and then yeah we've got an exciting period ahead of us um and and, and a lot more to come and Again, thanks to thanks to you, Matt, who's you know been a part in in I guess highlighting this uh, as well and and um, giving a forum and the opportunity for for a lot of our shareholders also to be able to ask more detailed questions than I can put out in a in an ASX release or a, or across in a presentation. You know, even even presenting it, it's it's a great great format and and really enjoy our our talks and chats. And Jamie, um, you know, again with your with your background and. And um, being in the industry, you understand. I think some of the some of the issues that that, that we have and the challenges and 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 what I guess what the results mean as well. I think that that's also been hard to digest for for some people because uh, it is a it is still new. It's still early. It's 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 still in the early days. This this basin and and um, it, but it's exciting. So you know, but just. Um, Thanks again for for um, hosting another one of these and 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 all your work and collating the questions and and uh, and yeah, I've really enjoyed our chat and and look forward to one hopefully in the near term when we're discussing more results or uh, you know on a different trajectory after this one as well. 
absolutely no. And I, yeah, though, likewise, Scott, I think I always appreciate your, your sincere and available uh, executive, and that's not always the case. And uh, I mean, we're two and a half hour mark here. So, I mean, I want to thank you for your time and your patience and your willingness to articulate these conversations and these answers, right? I mean, lots and lots of, of hunger for information. You're, you're more than willing to, to, to step up to the plate here and, and, and kind of uh, dismantle these conversations for two and a half hours. I know that there's lots of people cheering for you and your company and, and for the country for success. So uh, on that note, I guess, yeah, Scott, I thank you very much. And till next time, yeah. Have a good day, guys. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Jamie. And thanks, thanks everyone. For